I'm not going to keep you long tonight. I don't have much to say. <laughs> I want to revisit a well-known Bible story with you tonight, or perhaps next week, or perhaps the week after. We certainly started tonight. The story that of David and Goliath. You might say, what's so significant about that story? Well, let me see if I can answer that question. A few months ago, I was driving, going to an appointment, listening to Dennis Prager on uh, AM radio. And uh, I often listen to Dennis. He's a, a solid Bible-believing Jew. I'm not sure what category for put him in, whether he's reform, conservative, or orthodox. But he certainly is a, is a very strong, delightful, conservative gentleman. And he announced that he was going to interview someone in the next section a man by the name of Malcolm Gladwell. I said, he's authored a new book called David and Goliath. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I got to the place where I was supposed to go, but I was so interested with the conversation that I decided to stay in the car and listen to the end of, a, of the interview. Well, I was more interested than that, so I went and purchased a book about two and a half months ago, David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. The premise of his book, it's not a spiritual book. It's not intended to be a spiritual book. The premise of his book is that being big is not always an advantage. And he talks of uh, sometimes being small and nimble. It outweighs the fact of somebody being big and, and bulky. And he has a series of vignettes in which it speaks and addresses this thing, how small, insignificant people who seem to be deprived, etc., how they overcome incredible odds. But he keeps on referring back to David and Goliath. So I want to talk about David and Goliath tonight. And um, some of the things I'm going to say will be somewhat controversial. Uh, but I'm used to that. And so walk with me through it, okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints. Thank you for the power of your redeeming blood. And so I pray tonight that you'll talk to us. And so we simply say, speak, Lord, because your servants are listening and we want to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hello? Oh, sorry, you got the wrong number. <clears throat> In recent years, due to the advancement of technology and due to the adjustment in theology, things are in an incredible sense of transition. Some would say for the better, others would say for the worst. While the advancement of technology is to be expected, and in many ways to be celebrated, thank God for iPhones. <laughs> thank God for iPads. Thank God for all the things that interrupt us. Thank God for them. 
However, it is to be noted that science fiction has now caught up with scientific reality. And in some cases, science is about to open up a Pandora's box. One in which it will not be governed by any bioethics, one which has no governing manual because we don't know where it will lead and we don't know what it will accomplish. And speaking of the subject of transhumanism. Transhumanism essentially is the augmenting of humanity with the implementation of artificial intelligence. That robots become human and humans become robots. Now, those of an atheistic persuasion are excited about this development because from their perspective, it is the next giant step in Darwinism or Darwin's process of evolution. It started with subhumans, which became humans. And now it's time for humans to become transhuman or something other than what we are. <laughs> yeah? You still got the wrong number. <clears throat> It is something that the church ought to be praying about and being concerned about. In the last century, on four different occasions, things were initiated and introduced into society and the church viewed it as being, oh, that's gonna come to nothing. And we found to our chagrin because we do not have a theology to handle it, and because we do not have an argument to defeat it, that it took over. And so the church finds itself now continuously trying to react to what society is doing, rather than simply saying, hey, we set the guidelines according to the word of the Lord. But that's not the scope of my conversation tonight. It's not from the advancement of technology. Neither do I really want to discuss the alteration in theology or the adjustment in theology. But it's sad to say that theologians are trying to move two things out of theology. And this becomes very, very evident in the book and very, very evident in the way people interpret scripture. They try to remove the aspect of spirituality to make it just a common, ordinary experience, and they try to denounce and decree, decry that of the supernatural. And this story of David and Goliath is jammed packed with both spirituality and the supernatural. And I want to talk to you about it tonight. Now, I know you know the story. We learned it in Sunday school. In fact, we learned it so well in Sunday school that it's become a fairy tale. Only a boy called David, only a little sling. Only a boy called David, yet he could pray and sing. Only a boy called David, only a little brook. Only a boy called David. Did you sing that song? Five little stones he took. And one little stone went into sling, and sling went round and round. One little stone went into sling, sling went round and 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 round. And it keeps on going round and round. One little stone went up, 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 and the giant lay on the ground. That's the way the Sunday school story goes. I want you to look at David and Goliath with me. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Consider firstly with me the, the incident. The passage opens up this way. Now the Philistines. 
gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkot in Judah. They pitched their camp at Ephesdumin between Sukkot and Azakot. Now that's very, very simple. We look and we see the people. But who were, they? who were these Philistines? Well, nobody knows. Some think they came from the island of Crete, that they were seafarers, that they were pirates that came from the island of Crete. Others think, no, they came from the central part of the African coast and that they had migrated north looking for land, looking for a place in which they could prepare and make as a new home. We don't know who they were. We do not know where they come from, but we certainly know what they were all about. They were squatters. We're not sure when they arrived in the Holy Land. All we know is that in 1 Samuel 17, we are reintroduced to them that they wanted to exhibit some form of mischief. And so we are the people. Look at the purpose. They had gathered together for war. That was their only intent. They occupied the coastal region of the Mediterranean Sea, and that was not enough for them. And so they moved inland to the place called Sukkot, which is about 20 miles inland, and Sukkot was about 15 miles from Bethlehem. So they're right in the middle. What's important about Sukkot is this. It's the opening to the highlands where the major cities of Judah were, Hebron, Bethlehem, Jerusalem. If they could conquer Sukkot, they had access to the rest of the territory of Judah. But notice, it says that they assembled in Sukkot in Judah. In other words, they were trespassing. This wasn't their territory, whether by design or by previous warfare. They, went out, they moved out their territory to move into Judah to cause mischief. And so underscore the idea of in Judah, because that is basically what the enemy is always about. Hear me. He wants what you've got. It doesn't matter what it is. If he can steal it, he'll steal it. Because the enemy has come to rob, to kill, to steal, to destroy, to discredit. And so the Philistines in this context are very, very much like the enemy that we face on an ongoing basis. Now, look at verse 2. And so it says, And Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah. Elah was on the eastern side of the valley. It was on the opposite side to where the Philistines had gathered. And it was just a series of ridges and this beautiful dale in between, to use an older, a good old English word. This beautiful watered valley was in between. And Elah simply means oak or terabith tree which indicates what kind of trees grew in that particular region. And there, they waited. Saul had the opportunity. As soon as the Philistines came to Sukkot, he had the opportunity to either capitulate and say, ah, oh, well, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. Let them take over. Or he could go and say, I'm going to stop them, sure and no. And that is the opportunity that the Holy Spirit gives to each one of us. We can either say, well, there's nothing I can do. 
If the enemy wants to do it, well, he's going to do it. And, and nothing much I can do. All you can simply say, by the grace of God and in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, no. I'm not going to let him steal this or steal that. I'm not going to allow him to destroy this or destroy that. And Saul had to make a choice. And he made a choice. I'm going to say no. And so that is the setup for the event. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how long these armies looked at each other and growled at each other. We do know it is at least 40 days because Brother G turned up and he cried out, send me a man. Any man will do. And we'll fight. Now it's interesting because Goliath is called a champion. The Hebrew word translated champion is not the way we'd use the word today. When the Hebrew word for champion, it simply means a guy that stands in the middle of two groups in order to bring about a resolution. Goliath had done, is not known for having done anything. Goliath is not, you can't simply say, well, look at the many battles he's won. There's no record of him ever being involved in battle. All Goliath got going for him is this, he's huge. He's a giant, he's called a champion because he's willing to stand in between the two armies and some say, give me a man, we'll fight together and whoever wins the fight will represent the rest of the other groups. If I win, Saul and your army become our servants. If <laughs> you got, your guy should win, well then we'll submit ourselves to you. That's the story. Now I want us to look, we've looked at the incident. I want us to look at the individuals. And this is where, for me, it becomes interesting. There are three characters of, of significance in this story. There's Brother G. There's King S. And there's David, the boy. The Hebrew text underscores the fact when it speaks of you are but a youth, that it could mean that he had just reached bar mitzvah age, which would put him at the age of 13 years. He's not just a boy, he's a kid. Three individuals. And this is where Gladwell's book comes back into the, into the theme. Gladwell follows that which is uh, common amongst Israeli medical research engineers. For 70 years, they have wondered what caused Goliath to be so big. You know, he's a, he's a colossus. And so they've argued and debated, and they came to the conclusion that um, he was a diseased freak. <laughs> that he had a growth growing on his, I can't pronounce the word, because my mouth don't get around words anymore. Pituitary gland. Huh? Is that right? Did I, did I say it right? Thank you, old man. And because of this benign growth in this gland, 
It caused their, their growth hormones to keep on developing and growing. And so he kept on growing. If he'd lived to be a thousand, we would have been you know, a thousand feet tall. Simply because of, that was the nature of, of this disease. But they also go further by simply saying that one of the problems with this disease is that you have poor vision. That you do not see very well. And so Gladwell simply says, and the Bible proves this. And so because I'd read the book several times, and because I had read the Bible story hundreds of times, I thought I'm going to read the Bible story again. I'm not going to read any commentators. I'm not going to read any theologian. Because in the mouth of many counselors, there can be wisdom and there can be confusion. So I just want to see what the book says and compare it with, with what Gladwell says. And so Gladwell says, first of all, it's proven that Goliath could hardly see, partially blind. First of all, on, in the comparison of verse 40 and verse 43, it says of David, he took his staff, singular, in his hand, chose five stones, the Hebrew word makel, simply means shepherd's staff or walking stick. In verse 43, Goliath simply says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Plural. It's the same word except of David it's used in the singular, of Goliath it's used in the plural. And so Gladwell simply says, see, the plural account underscores that he was suffering from double vision. And, uh, I, I did. Okay, I can accept that. If, I, if, I'm, if you've got one stick and I'm seeing two, well then uh, I need glasses, corrective glasses. But Gladwell has another argument to support and substantiate his eye problem. It simply says that he, his spear was like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shackles. A shield bearer went ahead of him. So according to Gladwell, the fact of there being an armor bearer was a guide that wherever Goliath went, he put one hand on his armor bearer so that he would know where he's going to go. Now that's common for blind people. If you want to, uh, you know, you watch them. If they don't have a stick, they have their hand on someone so that they know, okay, whether you're going up or whether you're going down, which way you're going to turn. In fact, many, many years ago, we had a retreat, a young couple's retreat here in Bethesda. And uh, a guy was talking about faith. Now he said, I'm going to teach you the principle of faith. He said, I want the husband to blindfold his wife, and I want him to lead her. She can put his hands on his shoulder, and for the first 100 yards, he can lead her by touch. Then he's going to lead her by voice. She can't touch. You simply say, now walk forward, be careful, there's a step, stepping down, be careful, there's a rock, step over the rock. And he said, that way you're going to learn about the principle of faith. Well, that was fun. Then he said, now, girls, I want you to change places, blindfold your husband, and so lead your husband around. And so the, we started, and, and somebody saying, you, you know, uh, walking around with your hands on the shoulders of your wife, and if she went down, well, then you knew very well you were going to step down. But then when it came to speaking, 
There was one lady in the group who had the bright idea. So she was simply saying, we're going forward, now turn a little to the left, now there's a step, step up, step up, now go forward three paces, then we're gonna make another turn. And so he went two and a half paces and fell in the pool. He takes off the blindfold. He's mad as a hatter. And she said, Well, I want to let you know that sometimes you can't depend on what you hear. <laughs> awful, awful, awful. But I must be honest, everybody around laughed except the guy who fell in the pool. Gladwell simply suggests that this is what the armor bearer was doing for Goliath, leading him by touch. But is that true? Well, we know that Jonathan had an armor bearer, and there's no indication that Jonathan was nearsighted. We know that King Saul had an armor bearer, and there's certainly no indication that he was nearsighted. So you have to simply say, you know, Gladwell's argument, second argument, is weak, to say the least. But then you got a third argument for Goliath being almost blind. As Dave was coming towards him, he says, come here! In other words, he couldn't see David except if he came to close quarters and then they could interact with each other. But is that the case? Come here could be used as a taunt. Many, many years ago, there was a boxer by the name of Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, he had an extraordinary length of arm. And his favorite saying was, I float like a butterfly and I sting like a bee. And he'd be dancing around, and then he'd keep saying, come, come, come. And guys would come, and as they come, he go, boom. Hit them right between the eyes, boom, boom. Before they could reach him, he was reaching them because the length of arm, boom, boom. And people's faces, his opponent's faces, would swell like a balloon. It, Muhammad Ali wasn't suggesting that he was blind. He was suggesting that his opponent was dumb. Come and get it. Come and get it. And basically, I think that's what Goliath would do to him. But fourthly, they think that he was partially blind because he was cumbersome. Well, I submit to you, if you were wearing 300 pounds of armor, you'd stagger around a bit too. And so the idea of him being blind is open to question. But there's another interpretation for Goliath. Not that he was a diseased freak, but that he was a diabolical fiend. That there was something strange about this individual. They submit this uh, group submit that he was part of a kickback of a strange offering or offspring from the days of Noah. The original breed were destroyed by the flood, but there lingered some form of polluted DNA and some form of genetic malfunction which remained amongst a certain group. They were called Nephilim, Anakim, Zum Zum, Emmins, all weirdos, all giants, unusual in character and capability. In fact, there's something strange said about these 
characters in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. It calls them men of old, men of renown. What does that mean? There are those sages that believe that when it speaks of men of renown, it's speaking of people who come from mythology, that they were not mythological creatures, they were the real creatures, which was a crossbreed between that which is human and that which was angelic. In Numbers chapter 13, we read these words. The 12 spies went in to look at Israel, look at the land, and they came back and said, it's a fabulous land. Wonderful fruit. Everything that he said is terrific. But, verse 28, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. All the people we saw were of great size. We saw the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we look the same to them. Giants. Not diseased, freaks. Giants. We have another suggestion in Joshua chapter 11. At that time Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country from Hebron to Beer and Anah from all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory, only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Did any of them survive? Now listen to 1 Samuel 17, again, verse 4. Galiat, Shmo, he got Goliath from Gath. Is it possible that the fruit of the Anakim, which had remained in Gath, in Ashdod, and in Gaza, that this guy was part of that offspring which would make him weird and make him different. Now, I don't want to enter into the argument whether he was a disease freak or whether he's a demonic fiend. I want to look at the story. And so here we go. The first character that we're going to look at is Goliath. Okay? Repeat after me. Goliath, Goliath. Was, not was not what he appeared, what he appeared to, be. to be. Say it again. Goliath, Goliath. Was, was not what he appeared to be. Say it again. Goliath. That is true of every giant in everyone's life. Giants are never what they appear to be. Now, whether you're going to simply say, oh, well, I thought you weren't going to talk about Goliath, whether he was a demon, uh, demonized uh, fiend or a disease freak. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that Goliath was not what he appeared to be. For this reason, as far as the people of Judah were concerned, this man was indestructible and this man was undefeatable. They saw it, 
They heard him. And from their perspective, whenever somebody goes down to fight this guy, it's the end. We can't win against that giant. For the battle was not only for the mind, the battle was in the mind. The battle was for the mind, which is the will, but the battle was in the mind, which is the imagination. The more they looked at the giant, the bigger he became. The more they looked at the giant, the smaller they became. And they kept on saying, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> Every person in the house tonight has faced or is facing a giant. And how we view that giant will determine how we are going to live. Because they view the giant as unbeatable, what their forefathers said, we look like grasshoppers in their sight. These folk felt the same. That Nobody can beat him. He's indestructible. Now, I've heard people say that to me about drugs. You can't kick the habit, Pastor. You can't kick the habit. I've heard people say that about fear. You don't know what I'm facing. If you knew what I was facing, you wouldn't talk to me about standing in faith. The giant of fear. I've heard people say that about failure. I've tried. I've tried so hard. I've tried so many times. Serious. I've been serious with God. God, I'll never do it again. <clears throat> I'm never going to make that mistake again. I'm never going to be that foolish again. And the giant. Goliath appears to be indefeatable, unstoppable, and indestructible. I want you to know tonight, no giant is what that giant appears to be. As far as all of Israel were concerned, they trembled before the giant. Except one dude. Because you see, friends, it is important that we make sure we understand what the battle is all about and where the battle is being fought. If the enemy can get you thinking that he's the master, he doesn't need to do anything else. All he has to do is whistle. And like a puppy dog, he come running up. Yes, master. The apostle Paul, speaking eloquently, in the conclusion of his epistle to the church of Philippi, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He was not saying, I can climb Mount Everest. 
Oh, I know how to win the lottery. He said, I know what it is to be in want. I know what it is to have provision. I can face whatever comes my way because of the presence of Jesus. I can overcome whatever comes my way by the power of Jesus. And I will do it for the purpose of his glory and for the purpose of his kingdom. You need to understand what the battle is. Goliath, he despised the people of God. He didn't care about a covenant. <laughs> What's that? He despised the power of God. He ought to have known better because it was not too much earlier that God had demonstrated his power to be strong in Gaza, in Gath, in Ashtaroth. Other people said, send that ark away. We don't want a bar of it. We don't want the God of Israel here because of what he's doing to our God and doing to our people. So Goliath was cognizant of the might of the king. But he was not prepared to pay attention to it. And so he said, I'll come and fight in the name of my gods, not in the face of your gods. Goliath was not. He despised the purposes. He despised the people. And he despised the power of God. Now it is important to remember giants. What is it? You've forgotten. Giants are not what they appear to be. Say it again. Giants are not what they appear to be. Whatever the giant is. Could be frustration. On a Tuesday morning, we've been talking in the book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is battling frustration. Why? He asked God, How come, God? Frustration. Friend of mine, giants are not what they appear to be. They're not as big as they seem. And their intent is not for your sense of well-being. And so in this sense, Brother G is a type of sin. And to a lesser degree, a type of Satan. And whether we like it, whether we believe it, whether we accept it or no, Satan has a, an agenda to deceive, to defeat, and to destroy. He may come as a, as a roaring lion, or he may come as a glaring light. It doesn't matter. He has one purpose. That's to bring you into subjectivity and to capture you. And he is one of the world's greatest propagandists. All Goliath did was come forward with his armor bearer and said, send me a man or a boy if necessary. In fact, he would be willing to accept a lady. Send me something. Send me anything. And I'll prove to you who's going to be the champion. Who's going to win this battle. You know, propagandists are nasty little creatures. They're like that thing that came out of slime at the most inopportune time. In World War II, it was Meister Goebbels. 
Every night he was on the radio. He just told, you know, I don't know how much longer you can hold on. Do you realize how many thousand were killed in the Battle of the Bulge tonight? I don't know how much longer. And he just keep on pouring all this stuff. Everything was a lie. In Vietnam, it was Hanoi Jane. Just came out with yarn after yarn after yarn after yarn. All mouth. A friend, giants. They look big and they sound big because they have a big, big mouth. But giants are not. I, I want you to get this in, in, a, in a noddle. Giants are not. You a giant. My giant is not what I think he is. And so this was the enemy. And so the challenge is do not allow the enemy to deceive you or defeat you. Because the word of the Lord says, and they overcame him when they died. Is that what the book says? Huh? Huh? What did the book say? And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word they testimony. Every time you hear big mouth, open his mouth, respond with your mouth in the name of Jesus. By the blood of the Lamb. He paid the price in full. He made it possible for me to live. And for that reason, I live. Yet not I. But Christ liveth in me. Giants are not. That brings me to the second guy. Let me introduce him. The second guy, his name is Saul. If Goliath was not what he appeared to be, Saul was not what he ought to have been. Saul was not what he ought. An incredible idea. As you look at the life of Saul, and I need to bring this to a close. David, hearing the mouthpiece, yelling out, send me a man. Ask the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who killed the Philistine? and moves this disgrace from Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Verse 31, what David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. And David said to his king, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. In any other setting that was grounds for treason, you don't talk to your king like that. God, king, you don't need to be scared. You're supposed to bow down and say, yes, king, yes. Oh, oh, king, live forever. Yes, king, yes, king. Whatever you say, whatever you think, yes, king, yes, king, yes, king. All David could simply say, King, stop blubbering. Stop acting scared. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. 
Don't give in simply because of that dude down there. He said, I'll go and fight him. And Saul looked at David. Good grief. He looks bigger down there than you look in my presence. You're just tiny in contrast to him. David is responding. He said, I'll not only fight against the Philistines, I'll beat him. And so Saul suddenly becomes religious. Hallelujah. I love religion. I love it like taking medicine. Saul said, great idea, boy, great idea. Now that I got a volunteer, I'm going to take charge. Amazing how cowards can take charge when somebody else is prepared to put their lives on the line. You're going to fight him? Terrific, boy. I'm going to help you. He said, first of all, I've got to make you look the part. And so he puts, he brings his armor and he puts the armor on little David and he goes from his chin down to his knees. That's the breastplate. Then he puts on the helmet. It drops down over his eyes, over his nose. It's that big. Help, it's dark. It's not dark. The hat is too big. So it, And David turns to Saul and says, Saul, if you want this armor to go to battle, you wear it. I don't need it. I've not tried it. I've not tested it. You see, if you're going to fight the giant, you don't do it on somebody else's inspiration. You don't do it for somebody else who is encouraging, yeah, go on, you have a go. You have. David gives the armor back. And Saul says, go. And the Lord, you've got to quiver in your voice when you're religious. Go, and the Lord be with you. Goliath is not what he appeared to be. Saul. It's not what he ought to be. Good night. God bless you. Bye-bye.